and going live. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. Hope you're doing well. Happy Friday. We made it through another week. Of course, Bitcoin is 24-7, 365, but I do these live streams about three or four weekdays every week. And then also on Thursdays, I go live with Bitcoin Magazine on all of their channels uh, with FedWatch. So that was yesterday. Good show. CK could not attend. Nolan Count BTC on Twitter. He it was gracious enough to come back on and be a co-host. So I think it's an interesting mix when Nolan and I get on the show because I'm a little bit more, I think, by the book, by the letter, and he's a little bit more out there thinking about all the connections. And I do that as well, but you know, you can definitely tell that dichotomy between two of us. So it, it it's a fun, it's really fun to have him on the show. Anyway, we talked about the digital dollar that there's a bill for the digital dollar that was proposed in Congress. I guess it's against the digital dollar to stop the administration from doing a digital dollar by executive order. To round out our coverage of that, what I did was I read through the proposal and I also read through what the Fed has said about CBDCs. They put out a report last January of 2022 and went through all of their reasonings uh, and some of the risks that they're looking at and everything. And so far, you know, the Fed has a very good, I think, grasp of the complexities and the idiocy of putting out a CBDC. So I'm not concerned at all that there is going to be a digital dollar, except if it was put out by some sort of executive fiat, you know, executive order. That's possible, but unlikely, in my opinion. The Fed is, it's interesting because back in 2022, in their report, they said, hey, we cannot have individuals have accounts with us. You know, the general public cannot have accounts at the Fed. That is not authorized under the Federal Reserve Act. And the proposed bill, the main part of it, that's what they're doing is they're trying to make it explicit that individuals cannot have accounts at the central bank. So I don't know, it's a little redundant, uh, but it's interesting to see what's going on there. We also talked about China and the complexity going on with China. I've said here on this stream as well that it just feels like there is a lot of stuff picking up. You know, the pace is picking up over there in China and with this power conflict or great power conflict. Um, and that will bring us into the main topic for today. I know this is a long lead in. I shouldn't do that. The The topic for today, I wanted to look at Arthur Hayes' recent blog post on BitMEX. It's about the oil market in this kind of era of cyber World War III or hybrid World War III, whatever we're in right now. Uh, but he uses oil, the oil market as a proxy. That's exactly what I've landed on. I talk about oil on the show here a ton because it is such a great proxy for economic activity. And that's exactly what Arthur Hayes is doing. So anyway, a, a lot of this stuff will probably be familiar to listeners of this show, but we're going to go through it anyway. And I think there's a lot to learn from it. I agree with most of his premise and some of his conclusions, but you know, when he starts talking about central banking and the response by central banks, I, that's where I start differing from him. So we're going to go through this. This is one of my favorite subjects, obviously, is geopolitics and how money works into 
the grand game. So anyway, what you're looking at here, guys, is the website. I did publish the FedWatch post. I don't send that out actually as an email notification. I just have it as a thing to, to link back to. So when FedWatch gets published on the podcast apps in the show notes or in the description, everywhere you find that, there should be a link back to that this post. And this post will have all the charts and stuff uh, that I talk about on the show. So that, that's why I do that as a backlink for all of these podcast apps that FedWatch appears on. But anyways, um, slowly but surely getting caught up on the podcast versions of these live streams. I'm trying to do my best here. Uh, I might just skip a day if if I get too backed up. But right now I'm still within a week. So I'm not a week behind yet. <laughs> if I do get like, say, a week and a half behind on putting the podcast version out, I'll probably just skip ahead. Uh, so if you don't want to miss those guys that are listening on the podcast version, make sure you join in the live stream. Check out the YouTube channel, BTC Market Update. It's a new channel. It's only a couple months old, trying to build it back up because my old one was terminated. But I'm also streaming on tele, uh, Twitter, at Ansel Lindner, and of course, my home base of Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Appreciate everybody that supports the show and everyone that takes part in the Telegram. There is a way that we can see a melt up in stocks and Bitcoin, despite a recession ahead. How far is that recession ahead? That's what we don't agree on. Many of these analysts that have been wrong the whole time, they've been wrong about the effect of rate hikes from the Fed. They've been wrong on the path of inflation, quote unquote inflation, CPI and stuff. They've been, now they're wrong on China reopening. They're wrong, 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 wrong. And what do they think now? That we're going into a hard recession, hard landing this year. I saw another headline here that we could be in recession by June. I mean, obviously, we're not entering a period where there's going to be no recessions ever again. But where we disagree, where I disagree with these other analysts out there that have been wrong, is I don't see a recession until 2024, maybe 2025, especially a hard recession. I mean, we can always have a slowdown, but it's not going to be a textbook recession. Okay. Let's do one more before we get to Arthur Hayes. This was a tweet from Ryan Sean Adams, and he is a very famous ether guy. And they're trying to cope here. I mean, obviously, this is copium, but they're lashing out in all directions, trying to make sense of why the SEC is destroying their dreams, their hopes and their dreams that these centralized scams that they claimed were decentralized, why the SEC is cracking down. And the big thing now is this Binance stablecoin. People don't, they, they can't grasp why it's possible that the Binance stablecoin is actually security. And so here in this tweet, he's uh, saying, you can walk into any gas station in small town America and buy an illegal security like this. And he shows a Chili's gift card for $25. What he's saying is that this is a stablecoin. You give your 25, then you have $25 in stable coins that you can redeem at a later date. But see what he's not getting, and I'll bring up my commentary from earlier today. So if you guys are on the Telegram, I'm just going to read through my explanation of this. Stable coins and gift cards, they differ in a very obvious way. 
The first one is that gift cards are usable only to a gift card issuer. You can only redeem this gift card at Chili's. It's no good anywhere else, right? You can't take this gift card and use it at McDonald's. You can only use it at the issuer. So if Paxos is the issuer of Binance Coin, that means you could only use it for services from Paxos. But that's not the case. So these things are distributed. They can be exchanged anywhere. So that's one re that's the biggest reason how they're different. Now, I think the better question for it being a security is, do you expect gains? Is there a promise of gains from holding a stable coin? And, and at first blush, no, there isn't. So I tried to rack my brain and come up with a reason why this could be seen as a gain. And it's not a gain from the actual peg, but you do expect to gain utility and that Binance coin can be used in other profit-making activities, opportunities that you can't use a traditional bank dollar. Binance dollar has different utility than bank dollar. So you're getting this utility to access promised gains through a token and that token, so that token is a promise of profitable liquidity to the customer and that it is enabled by Paxos profitably investing the original money. I think there is a way you can stretch the definition to include these stable coins like this. So of course that means Tether is going to be involved or implicated and, but not Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is not going to be impl implement, uh, implicated because it, there is no issuer. The problem is that these stable coins have an issuer. That's that. Let's get into the Arthur Hayes piece. So Arthur Hayes, he was the CEO of BitMEX. I'm, I'm guessing he still is, but I know that they're, they had some legal issues and perhaps he had to step down. I don't know if he's just like a, a major shareholder, founder, and not CEO, but super, super astute guy, super awesome, lively guy. I think he's a great kind of influencer or not influencer, but he's a great face for the space, I think, uh, even though he does dabble in shit coinery. But in this piece, obviously he doesn't. So in the oil market, he's like, okay, well, this this going on in the oil market, let's use this as a proxy for World War III. What does this mean for Bitcoin? He doesn't say, what does this mean for Ethereum? You know, or what does this mean for the crypto market? Even though BitMEX is, you know, has all these crypto market tokens. So he is a Bitcoin maximalist, I think, but it's kind of bad for business to be a Bitcoin maximalist and run one of these exchanges. So this is titled Curveball, and it was written or published yesterday. So here we go. I'm going to read some of this, and we'll see how far I get into it. Uh, World War III has already begun. Whether the mainstream media and political elite wish to acknowledge it or not, it's just not being fought using the same methods or in the same theaters of war as the last two. Instead, these nuclear superpowers, USA, Russia, and China, are sparring against each other on the physical battlefield through proxies, Ukraine, in cyberspace, in finance via sanctions, and in semiconductors via virtual embargoes, in space via satellites, and in mental health, largely via social media. In every war, the side that has won has always been the one 
that was able to most effectively marshal resources towards its production of instruments of war. And given that everything produced in, by humanity depends on energy, all wars are won and lost on the availability of energy. Since World War II, that has meant hydrocarbons. Don't let the acolytes of Her Climate Royal Majesty Greta Thunberg mislead you into thinking hydrocarbons such as oil, natural gas, and coal don't matter. If these things didn't matter, the Middle East wouldn't be such a geopolitical important, geopolitically important place, and small city states would not be permitted to host the FIFA World Cup in 40 degrees Celsius heat using air-conditioned mega stadiums built in mostly with mostly imported foreign labor. Okay, we're going to skip down here. So then he says, uh, for this essay, I will focus on oil supply, demand, and price as a proxy for global energy. What would happen to the price of Bitcoin in the medium term if oil ramped 2x or 3x overnight? To answer this question, we must guess at what the major global financial powers would do in response. All right. He has three realistic potential situations, he calls them, that could lead to a rapid rise in oil. First is Saudi Arabia decide to, uh, Israel and or Saudi Arabia decide to bomb a piece of critical infrastructure in Iran. And Iran finally decides to escalate by closing the Straits of Hormuz. The second one is Russia, Saudi Arabia, and or other large oil producers decide to materially reduce their oil production. And number three is critical refineries and or oil and gas pipelines are taken offline due to deliberate sabotage. And he said the most likely one is the first one, the closing of the Straits of Hormuz. So the like the next bunch of this post is about what does it look like if we close a Strait of Hormuz? What does that mean for the world? So he gives us a primer on global oil supply and demand. I've done this on the show many times. The world's biggest oil producers, he has a chart here from Statista and the U.S. This is oil production by country. And the United States is the most, 16.6 million barrels per day. That is not everything. Let's see. This includes crude, shale, oil sands, condensates and natural gas liquids. So that's where it comes up because the U.S. only produces about, <laughs> I follow this very closely, but now I can't remember what it was. It, I think it was uh, 12.6 million barrels per day. So this would be 4 million more than that. That probably is coming from natural gas liquids, right? So anyways, the 16, Saudi Arabia is 11. Russia is pretty much 11. Canada is 5.4. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So uh, those are the big heavyweights in oil. So this is the the ten largest oil consumers and share of total world oil consumption in 2021. The United States we consume about 20 million barrels per day, or 21 percent of the total in the world. China, the number two economy that we are told is the number two economy, right? We're told that they actually surpassed the United States in purchasing power parity and all this other stuff that they are really threatening the U.S. Uh, in dominance and all this. But look, they only consume about 15 million barrels per day where the U.S. consumes 20. And like Arthur Hayes says, this is a measure of the size of the economy. So there's got to be some funny business going on here. You can't 
fake your consumption of oil. So this tells me that really China is already 25% smaller than the United States economy. But anyway, they, they consume 15% of world oil. Then you have India and look how far back India is. It only consumes 5 million barrels per day. 5 million barrels for India, the most populous country in the world only consumes 5 million barrels. And the U.S. that has, what, a fifth of the amount of people consumes 20. I don't think people understand what discrepancy there is in the world with the United States. The United States economy is so much bigger and so much more powerful, and especially per capita. Uh, when, When I listened to a kind of debate, I guess, between Peter Schiff and Brett Johnson, Santiago Gold on Twitter. And they were debating, you know, whether China was going to win this war or whether the U.S. was going to win this war. And of course, Peter said China was going to win. And Brett, <laughs> Brent said, no, the U.S. is going to win. I, I just, I don't think people like Peter Schiff or most people understand, like, what a better position the United States is in. And this is not because we're better like we're better people. It's just the way of the world. You know, like if if you're in a wrestling match and one guy gets to stand on a hill above the other guy and you wrestle on a hill, you're just going to say like the dude that's higher obviously has the more advantage. Obviously. Well, that that's, it's not saying anything about the person or the two people, the discrepancy between people. It's, it's just saying that the position that that person is in is much stronger than the other position. So when you look at the United States, we just have a better position geographically. We have a better position financially. We have a better position in all of these things. And for the kicker, then you can add in like our form of government. People complain about the like ruthlessness of U.S. foreign policy and all this stuff, but every other country does the exact same thing and they would do the exact same thing or worse if they could or worse. That's one reason why people are willing to put up with U.S. bullying, because it's better than their neighbors bullying them with AK-47s. So the U.S. bullying you, somebody at the U.N. is different than your neighbor country bullying you with AK-47s. That's the difference. So anyway, let's continue with this. The U.S. is the largest global producer and consumer of the sticky icky. (laughs) I just love the way Arthur writes here. Given that all economic activity is energy transformed, it is no surprise that the U.S. is the world's preeminent economic superpower. It doesn't have to rely on importing a significant amount of oil needed to power its economic juggernaut, giving it a leg up on some of its economic enemies. And not just that. You don't even have to import the oil. You don't have the borders with other with hostile countries. I mean, somebody would say Mexico is hostile or at least the cartels are hostile, but that's different. That's completely different than, uh, you know, China and India sharing a hostile border. North Korea, South Korea, DMZ. Big, big difference between the U.S. and Mexico and the U.S. and Canada. So it's not just that we have the resources. It's everything else, too. We have the land for cheap food and cheap transportation. We have the oceans to access both Europe and Asia. You know, the Pacific and the Atlantic. We have uh, all sorts of things. Plus, no enemies on our border. It's not only that the U.S. has the most 
stuff. It's also that it's the cheapest to do. And this is another thing too. Like I have said about Africa, like, let's say I want to look for a place in the world to invest a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars. Well, I, am I going to invest that in the U S where say I can invest a hundred million and earn 10 million a year on that hundred million, whether it's, you know, infrastructure project or whatever it is, I'm building a building or I can make 10 million off my hundred million every year, or you go to Africa and you only make 1 million off of your hundred million. Of course, you're going to go to the U S and that's a snowball effect. It's more expensive in certain places to have economic activity. That is why those places don't get the economic activity. Your money goes further elsewhere. You know, capital flows to where it's treated best or where it can be most productive is another way to put it. And if you are in a place with very low security costs and very low transportation costs, overall, the economy and the infrastructure is decent. The population is highly skilled. That's just going to be the winner. So anyway, let's continue with this. The Straits of Hormuz. So then he starts talking about uh, what if the strait was blocked and they looked at the number of barrels per day. So uh, to summarize, blocking the Strait of Hormuz removes approximately 17.3 million barrels per day from the global markets. Of that amount, only 3.8 million barrels per day can be rerouted via pipeline to the Red Sea, which leaves a net global deficit of 13.5 million barrels per day. That is approximately 13% of global demand. The marginal barrel of oil, which determines the last price, would immediately become extremely expensive as all other supplies would be spoken for. Woe be the nation that must bid in the spot market for that marginal barrel. Usually, it is the poorest flags that are most affected. We would likely see an outcome similar to how nations such as Pakistan experienced brownouts because they lacked the natural gas needed to generate electricity and couldn't afford to pay whatever it took like the rich Europeans, the U.S. Even though the U.S. is the largest oil-producing nation, they are still a net energy importer. That means the U.S. consumers pay the global price of oil. Also important is the fact that oil companies are private, for-profit companies, which are therefore free to sell their refined product to whoever will pay the most in the global market. The U.S. does not have state-owned firms that must sell domestically first. Because the U.S consumer pays the global oil price, U.S. foreign policy is very focused on securing a pliant Middle East via military force. Since I entered this universe in 1985, the U.S. has fought two wars in Iraq, a war in Afghanistan, participated in a civil war in Syria, and generally offered overt and covert support for a variety of moderate rebels who have participated in armed conflict throughout the Middle East. A pan-Arab pan coalition of Middle Eastern nations focused on securing the highest price for their oil for the betterment of their citizens rather than killing each other is to be prevented at all costs. Then he has this awesome chart about showing um, U.S. demand for crude oil. So the U.S. is a net importer of crude oil, but a net exporter of petroleum products. We import 2.8 million barrels per day, but we export 3.9 million barrels per day, which is very interesting. If a major amount of oil is taken offline for whatever reason, the rise in price will directly affect U.S. consumers. 
Thankfully, the U.S. has ample reserves of untapped oil should there arise the political and financial will to drill, baby, drill. Okay, let's scroll down here. Okay, the EU. EU member states like Italy and Germany might produce some badass cars like Lambos and Raris. I don't know what that is. Oh, Raris, Ferraris. But these sexy motor chariots can't move without gas. The EU is woefully deficient in energy. So from their perspective, the green energy transition makes sense. However, wind and solar are just not consistent and cheap enough once you factor in all the externalities faced by the poor countries supplying the raw materials needed to build wind turbines and solar panels. Also, it is not windy or sunny all the time. For the purposes of this discussion, when I refer to the EU, I am not including the United Kingdom or Norway. This is important, and I'll explain it shortly. Europa provides some truly depressing statistics for our baguette and cheese-eating friends. In 2020, the EU imported roughly 10.2 million barrels of oil. They must import that quantity because domestic production is only 0.4, 0.4 million barrels per day. Wow. The below chart outlines where the EU imported most of its oil from that year. So in 2020, most of it was from Russia, then Norway, and it looks like maybe Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, they're in big, big trouble. Big, big trouble. Let's continue. There are a few major issues with the places from which the EU sources most of its energy. As we know, Russia has been canceled and the EU no longer makes direct purchases of oil from Russia. But in 2020, Russia accounted for approximately 26% of all imports. That alone is a massive hole to fill. But it gets worse. Let's assume supplies from Saudi Arabia and Iraq are taken offline, and this is going back to the Hormuz thing, because they cannot ship the crude via the Strait of Hormuz and the pipeline to the Red Sea is full. That knocks out another 15% of the EU's imports. So taken together, the war with Russia and Middle Eastern disruptions would combine to knock out a little over 40% of total EU oil imports. Putting our common sense caps on for a minute, a piece of apparel I know is commonly in short supply in Brussels, the EU in this situation would become very dependent at the margin on its quote-unquote allies, i.e. Norway, the US, and the UK. The reason I lump these three in one group is because they are all culturally similar all are majority Judeo-Christian derivative societies, and they are all members of NATO. Norway has the capacity to pump a lot more oil into the EU if the EU is willing to pay for it. As I described above, the U.S. has a vast amount of untapped proven oil reserves whose output could be sold on the global market at mate rates to their allies. And finally, the U.K. Oil and Gas Authority estimates that the North Sea contains between 10 and 20 billion barrels of oil. All that is needed is for the politicians to allow the major energy companies of each of these countries to explore, develop, and pump this oil. Okay, I want to... Japan. Japan is just fucked. They import almost 90% of their energy needs. Sadly, according to the EIA, as of 2020, Japan had only 44 million barrels of domestic proven oil reserves. 44 million barrels. That's it, not per day, but 44 million barrels, period. 
of domestic proven oil reserves. The best Japan can do is restart all of its nuclear reactors, but even that won't be enough to shield the land of the setting sun from the impacts of super duper expensive hydrocarbons. Japan imported 94% of its oil from the Middle East, which has 2.5 million barrels per day, which was 2.5 million barrels per day. If shipping said oil is not possible due to closure of the Strait of Hormuz and or the Strait of Malacca, only two countries can feasibly bridge the gap due to Japan's geographic location, Russia and the U.S. Even though Japan fully supports the U.S. in its proxy war against Russia, its lack of energy necessitated resuming purchases of dirty Putin oil in January of this year. Unfortunately, that only amounted to 0.2 million barrels per day, or 0.9% of its total monthly oil imports. In a pinch, Russia won't be able to be the swing producer for both Japan and China. This means that Japan would be fully reliant on remaining in the good graces of the United States in order to replace its Middle Eastern supply. As, a, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. has plenty of spare proven oil reserves to supply at the right price. So where, oh, where shall Japan get the money to pay for U.S. oil? The BOJ has a money printer, and they definitely aren't afraid to use it. And did I miss that part? Did I skip over it about the EU? So he said the EU is going to print. Yeah, sorry, let me go back to this. Given the above, my belief is that the ECB will be called upon to print euros, which can then be used to pay for increased imports of Norwegian, U.S., and U.K. oil. But I also think that those three countries will not be so generous as to accept euro for their oil. It's a trash currency from a region with no population growth, expensive and unproductive labor, and no energy. Wow. I mean, he just sums it up so well why I'm so bearish on Europe in general. Instead, I expect they will require the ECB to print euro, sell the euro for USD in the global FX markets, and then pay for the oil. This would weaken the euro versus the USD, which would be bad in the sense that imported energy costs would rise for the EU, but would be good in the sense that a weaker euro would cheapen EU goods exports. Okay, so then now going back down to Japan, he's like, yeah, they will just print. There are no easy answers for China. They don't have much domestic untapped energy reserves. According to a 2021 South China Morning Post article, China had only 280 million barrels of additional proven oil reserves as of 2017. They are very reliant on Middle Eastern oil shipped through the Strait of Hormuz and the Strait of Malacca. They are at war with the U.S. and therefore cannot expect any help from the U.S. or its allies. And building overland pipelines from either the Middle East or Russia takes time. These pipelines must cross through a variety of other nations who may throw up obstacles to obstruct said pipelines safe completion. All right. The EIA estimates China's oil consumption averaged 14.7 million barrels per day in 2021. China domestically pumps 4 million barrels per day, which means they must import 10.7 million barrels per day. China, unfortunately, receives most of these oil imports via sea, primarily through the Strait of Malacca, which I talked about above. China desperately needs to diversify its oil supplies away from maritime delivery to delivery via overland pipeline. Okay, currently there are two major pipelines and they talk about it, but really the pipelines right now are only doing 1.2 million barrels per day. So, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. 
reality dictates that in the face of higher energy prices, China would need to dramatically reduce its energy consumption while building more overland pipelines to Central Asian energy producers. Telling your plebes to curtail their lifestyle in order to save energy is not an easy conversation. No Western politicians have been able to pull it off successfully. Just look at how quickly so-called climate-focused politicians in the West resorted to coal, nuclear, and wood burning to keep their people from having to make hard sacrifices when they stopped buying Russian energy. That said, the CCP has demonstrated they are perfectly willing to place immense hardship on their comrades. Okay, If China needed to dramatically slow its economic growth to buy itself time to shore up its economics or its energy supplies, the party would likely be perfectly willing to execute said policy. Yeah, that's one reason why I am bearish on China as well. I mean, they're just dependence on foreign energy that's easily disrupted. Hey, what's up, guys? Breaking in on the edit. I wanted to add something that I didn't get to in the live stream, and that is uh, Arthur Hayes, at least this analysis of China, It's I, I agree mostly with it, but they cannot slam on the brakes. That's not possible. They're a credit bubble. They were built on credit. They're basically a dead man walking. There's no way to taper Ponzi scheme. If if credit is not growing, it's dying. And it doesn't die in a whimper. It dies in an implosion, a big bang. So they will not allow that to happen. The commies will not allow that to happen. So they will do the same thing that everybody else does. They will have accommodative monetary policy, bailouts. The one thing that they could do a little different than the United States, I mean, Japan also had a command economy. But China has gone out and told the banks to lend money, ordered them to lend money. I think it was January. We got the numbers for credit creation in China. And in January, it was like over a trillion dollars US. So that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. And nothing that they're doing right now is saying that they are any different. They are going to enter the same stagnation that we all are. That's how we know that every central bank is going to go back to accommodative monetary policy. Anyway, that doesn't change overall Arthur's point here because he says on net, the global central banks will be accommodative. But I just wanted to point that out for China. Okay, let's get back into it. I mean, I think China's in worse trouble since they're on the wrong side of the United States than Japan. Let's talk about what he says about central banks here. So TLDR, if energy suddenly became much harder to come by and prices rose dramatically as a result, we could ex expect each country to respond as follows. The U.S. goes from tightening to loosening monetary policy. The EU goes from tightening to loosening monetary policy. The BOJ, no change because they're currently very, very loose with their monetary policy. But the PBOC goes from loosening to tightening. On balance, the net outcome in the face of an energy shock would be a global loosening of monetary policy. Now back to Bitcoin. Well, let me say to that part, specifically what I said in the in Telegram about this. I'm going to pull this up so I can read it. Okay. Part of Arthur Hayes' arguments here is that the central banks will respond by you know printing money or loosening monetary policy. But the current monetary policy doesn't tighten or loosen money. I mean, people think that what QE is is money printing, but it's not. Okay, so the 
I say, first and foremost, central banks tight, loose or tight monetary policy really doesn't matter all that much to the supply of money in the world. Money supply is dictated by lending standards and demand for loans, period. You can take that to the bank. In a more open World War III scenario, money is going to become very tight. So lending, bank lending, both lending standards and demand for loans, those are going to combine to make credit extremely tight. And that is what is actual money printing, right? So less and less money printing will happen. And most likely the other effect of when you have a narrowing of credit creation, that it gets, blah, 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 it gets narrowed to certain asset classes. And that's why we see what's called asset price inflation, because that's literally where the, the spigot of the hose, like think about you have a hose with a little spigot thing on it that you can tighten or loosen to make the stream a little bit different. And as you loosen it, you know, the stream is actually wider. It shoots out more. And then when you tighten down the end of that hose, it narrows it down to more of a stream. And then if you're narrow it down enough and it's just barely trickling out, it's going to be in a little tiny stream. So that's what credit creation is like. As you open it wide open, it's just spraying credit everywhere. And then you don't get asset price inflation because credit is equally spread around the entire economy. But when you start narrowing that credit down through raising credit standards or decreasing demand for credit, you narrow that stream down and where is it shooting? It's shooting mostly into certain asset classes that we consider asset price inflation to happen in. That's why we get asset price inflation. It's not because it's stuck in the banking system or anything. It's because those are the industries that are most credit worthy. Anyways, we, we should expect asset price inflation big time. When credit becomes tight, we should expect asset price inflation. They, so I say nothing the Fed can do with traditional monetary policy is going to make it loose. So money is going to become tight. The Fed cannot make it loose through QE because QE is just an asset swap. So I say they will have to actually print money, not as reserves, but actually print either dollar bills or they'll have to put fresh money into the banks. And this means unfettered money or unencumbered money. So, you know, like you're talking about QE is an asset swap. It's a reserve for a treasury, but that's not real money that they're using because you can't buy a sandwich with a reserve held at the Fed. You also have swap lines with other central banks, but those are short term and they have to be repaid. So that's not money printing either because it might initially act as new money but then it's repaid and it's destroyed just as quickly as it was out there you know because some of these are seven days or 14 days so it has to be actual money printing that doesn't have an associated liability with it and i talked about this all the time how do you know when money is printed you know if fiat money is printed and you look at a balance sheet assets are added period that's it assets are added that is the new money that was just printed but when you have to use credit to print money, you actually have a liability created. You have multiple balance sheet entries that go on there. And it eventually has to get paid back or defaulted on. Either way, it's unprinting of the money. It's you know destruction of the money. 
what I'm saying here is in a World War III scenario that Arthur Hayes is laying out here, instead of this causing like inflation or causing central banks to be loose and cause inflation, credit conditions are going to be extremely tight. And mostly what's going to happen is people are going to be searching for alternative monies. And this is going back to what Jeff Schneider says about a monetary shortage. People go out and look for other things to use as money. So in a monetary shortage, that's extremely tight because credit is contracting in this globally connected financial system as it's becoming not globally connected or disconnected, then you're going to have a massive, massive shrinking of credit. And it's going to be extremely tight and people are going to be searching out for alternatives. And that's, that gives Bitcoin a bid. Um, the other alternative they have, like I said, is to print actual, actually print money, dollar bills, or put zeros into people's bank accounts. Everybody says, oh, they just print it out of thin air and they put zeros in people's bank accounts. No, they don't. If they really put zeros in people's bank accounts, we would have hyperinflation. We literally, we would. And I think that's extremely dangerous. So when I'm looking at Europe and they want to do something like this, oh boy, they're going to experience heavy, heavy, heavy inflation. That's maybe why they want a CBDC. They know they're going to have to print to kingdom come, really print. Hey guys, jumping in on the edit again. It's a long episode. You get two jump-ins. I wanted to point out that even with extremely tight credit conditions and shrinking total outstanding credit, since we are deglobalizing, we don't know exactly what's going to happen to prices. So prices could still go up because we are deglobalizing and we're in a war, right? And supply chains are so globally connected, prices could still go up even though credit is becoming very tight. So um, anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. Let's get back to it. I could go on and on about this, but I don't want to make this live stream too long. I definitely recommend you guys check out this blog post by Arthur Hayes on the BitMEX blog. That's going to do it for today. Sorry, this kind of ended abruptly, but my name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. Join me here all the time on Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets, or on these live streams for just talking my mind, live uh, kind of stream of consciousness. That Today was definitely a stream of consciousness. Check out all my work at bitcoinandmarkets.com. Support if you would like to. Appreciate everybody that does support. And you guys have yourself a great weekend. Spend time with friends and family. What's really important in this life, not uh, worrying all about politics and geopolitics and stuff, you know, take care of those closest to you. So, all right, guys, have a good one. Bye.